0: construes specific investment advice and if you do require advice you should seek an appropriate advisor be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. Mental
1: and nervous claims are having a really devastating effect on the cost Um, for two reasons. One is the frequency they're now becoming significant material um, percentages of all claims, and the longevity of those claims.
0: This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching, and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the elder planning counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, this is Jason Watt, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. In this in this episode, I'll be interviewing Paul Eels. Paul. Uh, specializes in underwriting uh, long-term disability for Canadian insurers. He's British himself, you'll hear and see in the episode, obviously, but, um, and this episode is good for life insurance credits in most jurisdictions. That's true for BC, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario. Um, it'll be good for an S credit in Alberta, uh, because we're talking about long-term disability insurance, no life insurance credit in Alberta, just ANS. And then uh, IAS credit, that's Advocates, and a financial planning credit, an IROC professional development credit, sorry, a financial planning credit from FP Canada, an IROC professional development credit, and MFDA insurance credit. I honestly have no idea what's happening with the new SRO now and CE credits. I know by time you're listening to this, it'll be March. Maybe by then we'll have some more visibility, but I'm going to treat this as if it's what it was prior to... December 31st of 2022 um, and maybe we'll get some more clarity around CE credits. I haven't really seen much on new SRO yet. Okay. Um, I do have a warning for this episode. Uh, there is a, a fairly explicit discussion around suicide. So if you're better off uh, not listening to that, then maybe you skip this episode. Uh, the object for today is our meeting cadence so we have not to see the whole thing trust me but this is our meeting cadence this is how i know when i have to make reports to the ceo and all that good stuff so the uh object for today is meeting schedule or meeting cadence and um with that let's roll into the interview I'm here today with Paul Eels. Paul is joining us from the south of England. And Paul, uh, those of you in the group benefit space, and especially CGIB members, will know Paul from Camden, um, sorry, Camden Underwriters. And Paul's the president there, founder, I think, pretty much everything, Paul, right? Can you give us a quick rundown of who you are and what your business is? Yeah, Camden Underwriting
1: Agencies, Inc., is um what it says, it's an underwriting agency. It's not a broker, it's not a TPA, it's not a carrier. We are effectively a wholesaler that works with carriers to provide TPAs and brokers with product rates um, and support. We don't actually sell to the public. We don't sell to groups. We are just that wholesaler sitting in the
0: middle. Correct. Right. and I'm just gonna give a warning for our viewers slash listeners here that you have some contractors in the house today, Paul, so we might get an interruption from either your contractors <laughs> or, or my grandkids. right? So. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so that's a good starting point, and I think that's going to help folks who are active in the group benefits side. But um, can you tell us then who, because you're not selling directly to the public, so who is your ideal client then? Who do you want to be talking to day in and day out?
1: Day in, day out, we probably talk to TPAs most of the time. We have a number of brokers we work with, and the relationships are a little different, but the TPA does everything, so we just give them the numbers for the particular risk they want. Uh, brokers tend to be a little bit more of a uh, of a different nature. They require a bit more support an explanation of what's going on, and clearly, if they are brokers, they'll need TPA services to work with us, so we do have a TPA that Carries okay, out the administration on behalf of the clients we
0: place. So your your TP or third party administrator client would be sort of coming to you and saying, like Paul, we have you know this kind of group that we haven't traditionally been able to cover, but we know that there's a demand for it. So you know maybe ten percent of our of our business needs this kind of offering. What can you structure for us? Would that be about right? Sometimes, m- more frequently,
1: it's just we are a touch point to get quotations for particular risks. So we see a whole raft of different industries from one end, computer consultants, IT companies, to the other end through um, construction, uh, manufacturing, to non-profits and um, uh, native band business. It's it's a fairly widespread um, remit. But they come to us on the areas where they know that we're strong, um, particularly in the grey to blue collar areas where our particular strengths are.
0: You're only active in the Canadian market, Paul, right? This is accurate, despite your geographic location.
1: Yes, that's true. Um, started working in Canada probably 2002 yeah. when I, I helped um, a Canadian entity place long-term disability reinsurance into Lloyds of London. Um, my background helped me on that because I did, did a lot of um, LTD business prior to that. Um, particularly my my cross to bear was um, loss of license for airline crew, which I did it for a number of uh, airlines across the world. Um, I got interested in, in um, Canadian business through that contract started to help them write calculation routines, look the policies and booklets. I just found myself sliding into the Canadian market. and It's actually quite a pleasant market to work in. It's it's, um, I find it friendly market. It's, it's difficult to explain. I know it's 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 a, um, a competitive market, but it's easy to deal with the people that we work with. And I think that was quite important for me coming from a very heavily regulated situation in the UK, where at that time we had a thing called the Financial Services Act, which made working in the UK quite tricky. But I have never really worked in the UK. I've lived in the UK, but never worked in the UK. That's the odd thing about
0: it. The nature of sort of, just like if you start off in the aviation business, you're, you're always gonna be by default heavily uh, off-border, cross-border, international, whatever.
1: That's right. I think my my very first batch of clients going back to the, and I've been around a long time, this is late 70s. Um, one of them was Pan American, the airline, uh, as it was sliding into bankruptcy. Um, and I I learned a lot of that business through that airline. It was just the most marvelous experience for a, a, someone in their 20s. They were, they were giving us so much um Responsibility to deal with these very large clients—that um, it was learning uh, on the job—and it was great. Now it's not quite so easy.
0: Uh, no, it's the it's the best kind of learning. I do find this today that it's become a harder place to get that on the job learning, especially for the sort of solo printer. I think that it's uh, the the more complex markets have become so complex.
1: Agree, agree. I think the. My main concern, I think, as as a practitioner of, uh, in the insurance market for over 40 years is that nobody's allowed to make mistakes. And yet when you go to any um, course, the one thing I always tell you, you only learn from your mistakes. So how do people learn? It's it's a bit of a conundrum.
0: So that, uh, That's a good point. Yeah, I never, uh, never thought about the, the serious consequences of mistakes. And where that can show up, you know, in in the real application of your business. That's a that's a good point, Paul. Um now, I assume you still I know you're primarily working in Canada, operating in Canada, but um I'm sure you're aware of what's happening in other international markets in, in the US, in the UK, maybe Australia, I don't know. Um what trends do you see elsewhere that we might be thinking about seeing in Canada? What should the the Canadian group benefits person be be thinking about?
1: I think governments around the world um, are, they fall into two groups. They either become, um, and they tend to be politically based, socialist countries or what what people call socialist left wing, whatever you like to call it, paternal, doesn't matter which word you use. They're tending to try and improve social security systems um, and leave fewer gaps for private coverage. The problem with doing that is the cost of doing so is quite prohibitive in many circumstances. The other, the other market basically is, is the, the market we see in Canada and the United States where and the UK where private provision is, is required and particularly through group benefits. Other than LTD and on-term disability, which is quite expensive, those markets are quite vibrant long term disability in particular, um, disability benefits in general and creeping towards group CI, they're under strain, because the costs are increasing. And, uh, and lots of companies we see lots of uh, across this spectrum, are looking to cut back those costs, which are un- unpredictably volatile. Life costs are not, disability costs are, that's the problem.
0: Right, so I wanna delve into the long-term disability premiums a little bit more long-term disability costs, but actually you made a comment about CI here, and I'd like to um, head down that path a tiny bit if we can, because I think Canadians are 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 used to seeing our LTD premiums, like there's been a real pressure here the last couple of years. I don't know if that's masked what's happening with CI. Are we seeing CI premiums go up in Canada right now? I, I'm not ignorant here, Paul.
1: Yeah, CI premiums are quite stable because they're based on the demographics of the group and the mobility for the whole of Canada. It's not specific to one industry. There are some minor variations for industries like firefighters where they suffer a very increased incidence of cancers because they're dealing with toxic materials a lot of the time. So you do see tiny bumps like that. But that's a fairly stable cost, but it's quite an expensive cost. It's expensive because if somebody gets one of these diseases, they get paid a lump sum immediately. Um, And irrespective of where they recover and go back to work, they've got this lump sum. So that tends to be stable, but quite expensive. Not quite as expensive as LTD, but still there. So that's, that's, that's not under pressure. I don't think it's penetrated the Canadian market as much as it has done in the UK market, for instance. It originated in South Africa and has moved its way into, into the more the first world countries. <clears throat> and it has made a penetration, but there is a lot of resistance, because it's not a traditional benefit. You know, Canadians are quite conservative. That's what I like about you, actually. <laughs> um, but at the same time, there, there is some little move towards critical on this. But it's not a rush. It's not a. It's not a stampede towards that product.
0: I think in Canada, I don't know if this is true in other markets, but in Canada, when you see CI as part of a group offering, it's relatively small face amounts—twenty-five or fifty thousand dollars, right? It's. It tends to be so maybe 50, that's 50, where it, it masks that premium as well.
1: Yeah, it, it tends to be low amounts. Typically, the ones we see it, it's it is the ten to 25 thousand. and those two numbers are the two numbers that you see almost universally. Occasionally you'll see more, but very, very infrequently.
0: So in the UK, would it be common to see larger CI face amounts?
1: Very, very variable. Um, it, okay. you know, Typically it's down to individuals to choose. It's not necessarily a mandatory group okay. plan. It's down to individual choice. We have quite a lot of um, flexpan type arrangements in the UK, <laughs> where it's just growing up over a period of time um, but CI is quite popular in the UK. I, I have a CI policy, so it it, um, it tends to be a good one.
0: I have CI too, but mine's an individual CI, and I'm ninety nine percent sure. I'm not. I'm not responsible for our group plan, but I'm ninety nine percent sure our group plan does not have any CI in it. So
1: that would be fairly
0: typical. Yeah, I just I can't remember our benefits booklet that well, and I should know honestly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <coughs> all right. Um, so then. What about then circling back to LTD risks? So, you mentioned some you know specific types of groups. You talked about um, you know uh, band operations or certain types of occupations or with international exposure. So, what types of risks are you specifically getting involved in? Typically, like when will the TPA bring you in? When will they say, Paul, we need we need your help with with underwriting this set of risks?
1: It, it tends to be when these accounts come up for renewal. They'll look at us to see if we can provide a cost-effective product. Um, it's account by account. Occasionally we see blocks of business, but it is account by account. And what happens is when they understand that we're very good, say First Nations accounts, we'll see more First Nations account from that particular broker or TPA. So it tends, you tend to drift into industry sectors by practice rather than by design. Um, so we have, a, we have a, a clear block of non-profit accounts because that is really where I have a great understanding of how non-profit accounts work and where we think we're quite good. We have a block of First Nations accounts, which we're quite good at, um, some trucking. Uh, so we are quite good at various industry sectors where we're competitive and understand the industry. Some sectors, we're not as good, and we have to understand that. We all have our uh, our pluses and minuses, and things like you know, insurance companies, um, computer companies, we're probably not as good, to be quite honest, because everybody wants to be in that white-collar sector, and to be in that white-collar sector, you are really playing where everybody wants to play, whereas you go to non-profit sector, You'll find there are only two or three people that compete with you who have the understanding that we have.
0: So can we look at a nonprofit example, maybe? So I'm a you know TPA, a renewal comes up for nonprofit, the the broker responsible comes back and says that renewal is the the premium is too high, or the traditional insurers just said like we're not willing to deal with that risk anymore. Where what's the what's the sort of trigger for the you know, the the agent broker TPA to, to come to you, then what, what have they seen from the traditional insurer,
1: I think it's just the old one, it's a, a sudden increase in the premium rate. That's the that's the biggest trigger. Hmm. Um, and we're seeing too much of that right now. For because there's been a lot of discounting in the Canadian market, heavy discounting, which a little of that has gone to the nonprofits, for instance, but not that much. Nonprofits tend to have a, a reputation for having poor claims experience so the rates traditionally are higher um might be two or three times the rate for a white collar worker so as those rates creep up there's a point reached where the broker or tpa will reach out to us and say here's an account can you do anything with this account um And very often we can, sometimes we can't, I'll be honest with you, sometimes they are so bad, we turn around and say, look, we can't do any better than the current carrier.
0: So does so bad mean, like you look at the claims experience and it's awful, or is it that the the demographic composition is bad, or is it the industry is, what's the, it's so bad we can't do anything? It's not
1: the industry, there's always the correct rate for, for the risk. It's just the risk has been underrated in the past or it's suffering from really catastrophic claims experience, um, that can happen. Can creep up on you, quite frankly, and it's endemic in some industries. The, the nonprofits, for instance, the community services sector, they tend to have higher claims ratios than most, but it, it's part of the way they work. If you're, if you're in the, um, social services, you, you're helping people that are disabled or disadvantaged in one form or another. Unfortunately, the, the tendency is to hire people that are disadvantaged or suffering from a minor disability, but that tends to work its way through to long-term stability, which deteriorates claims experience, and you get this cycle of increasing costs, and it doesn't go away. It's, it is very variable it's very variable. We have a number of accounts, some are very good. And some are very bad. And um, it's exactly what they do. You can't just lump the nonprofits together, they are the the various sectors are react very differently in terms of claims experience. It's just how the hiring practices and the working environment. And some of these working environments are very tough, they sound the people are not paid well. And the environments are tough. Uh, you know, I don't think I could do the
0: jobs that these people do. So if I, I used to be on the board of a, a fairly large Alberta um, charity that employed about 600 people and specialized in the disability, like it was folks with disabilities was the primary constituent. And about 40% of the workforce was people with a disability, mm-hmm. I think, and then working primarily retail jobs, you know, that, that was the, the primary source of employment for for our workforce. Um, I always, like, that's an impossible disability risk to insure. I just, I never saw how it could be done.
1: Well, it it's not, it's not impossible to insure. It's just, <laughs> it's costly to insure.
0: <laughs> it's well, a different. between the two. <laughs> how about this? At the, the wage that those folks were being paid, you would have to, you know, like disability benefits would have to be such a, a significant percentage of their wage to make it, I think, untenable.
1: That's, yeah. yeah. It, it's it, it's a tough call. There's a tough, there are tough calls, and there's, n- there's no doubt about it that those sectors do pay higher rates than say, um, IT people. Um, the other sector that's very similar are truckers. Um, uh, some of the truck truck companies are quite good. Other trucking organisations have this history of um, older workforce because. Trucking is not very attractive to young people. So the, the workforce in truckers getting older and older and older. And just the, the natural attrition rate, the mobility factors, they're starting to come in and bite those those organisations so that their rates are higher because of the demographic structure of their account, not the type of the industry. So there, you have to understand the interplay here between, so if I see a truck company with an average age of 58, I know the rate's going to be terrible. I see it forty eight. I'm thinking well, that's okay because you've got young and old. You've got distribution,
0: right? right. And forty eight is still a relative. I mean, a, at our workplace, forty eight would be at the. I'm forty eight, and I'm I'm one of the old dogs. So yeah, that's um. Okay, so can we talk about some of the customization you can put in place here? What what tools do you have in your toolbox? So it's it can't just be rates. I'm assuming, right? What can you do as far as I don't non-evidence maximums or working with smaller groups. What what tools are in your toolbox here, Paul? It, it,
1: the tools are the same in any any carrier have. We don't, there's one tool we don't use. We don't discount. Um, we try to get, and we say this to all of our clients, we try to get a rate which is sustainable, subject to um there not being massive variations in demographics. You know, if you take away all the 25 year olds and replace them with 55 year olds, you're going to get a rate increase. But providing that doesn't happen, or the converse, that by, by the way, if that doesn't happen, then we try to get these sustainable rates. And we're very honest. We, we talk to the clients. We say, look, you can get a cheaper rate by going to this insurance company or 20%, 20% discount, 30% discount. In two years' time, you're looking at a rate increase, you're back where you are. So we try to even out these mm-hmm. curves. We try to make it Instead of a, a sine curve, just a little ripple at worst. A straight line is our objective. Um, we do have um, we advise on the the impact of NEMs, for instance. NEMs are great vehicles; everybody gets covered. But does it deliver correctly? Because the vast majority of the workforce will be below a lower NEM and you just get a few people on the higher higher uh, coverages under the NEM, is that what you want? Um, and it's really odd when you talk to them about the various tools, NEMs, the overall maximums, the structure of, of, of the way we describe the benefit. Um, yeah. You can't add new exclusions because that's not permitted. Um, all you can do is, is to give advice on waiting periods, how you manage the account. We do have a couple of specialist plans that are not like LTD. They have similar structure, but it's effectively monthly paid critical illness if you can't work, which is, is different from critical illness. It's different from LTD. But it means if you get, say, cancer and you can't work, you get paid a monthly benefit in the same way as you get paid an LTD benefit. But if you go back to work, the benefit stops. You don't get the lump sum. So that that just, but that only covers critical illnesses or catastrophic accidents. So it just is a halfway house. It's cheaper than CI, because you're not paying a lump sum. And it's cheaper than LTD, because you're not covering things like mental and nervous um, disabilities, um, fibromyalgia, the, the, all of the subjective complaints, broken legs, uh, bad backs, they all disappear. So you're only treating life-threatening or life-changing illnesses or injuries. So it's a lot, lot cheaper than those, but it's not LTD. It's designed to fit a hole where anything else is too costly to do. And we have a number the- of...
0: Yeah, what kind of group would choose that coverage? Would you see that in the nonprofit sector or where it else? It could be any sector.
1: It could be any sector because, you know, it's, that one is dictated by price because, right. because it's based on critically illness type disabilities. It's not affected by the experience of disability within any organization. It's based on Canadian mobility tables again. So it's much cheaper than LTD much cheaper than CI. But a good example might be I've seen a case where the LTD rate was crashing upwards very fast. It was over 10, which is catastrophic. We came back in with an, an what we call this acid product, and our rate was 1.5. It reduced the cost very, very quickly, but at the cost of coverage. There is no other way here. It's coverage... Has to be foregone if you're going to reduce costs in an environment where experience is an issue. That over ten
0: rate for just for those listening, who, I mean that would be three times what you would see in a lot of, even five times what you'd see in a lot of yeah. workplace three, LTD. Uh, uh, yeah. So,
1: yeah, non-profits yeah. would be might be three or four times. Yeah, are uh, you know, down to your IT top industries it's ten times.
0: I mean, yeah, that's fair. It's, the one you said everybody wanted, right? That's the, yeah, yeah, it's
1: the one everybody wants. And it's the one that has young people and lower experience, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, those nice. are, I like call the pure vanilla end, it's at the dark blue end where things are not going well.
0: Can you just talk for a second, Paul, about the normal set of exclusions, the, the uh, pre-X set of exclusions, and anything else that would be excluded in a normal, like a conventional LTD plan? Um, yeah,
1: pre- pre-existing conditions tends to be the one that most people are focus on because yeah. it, it it is that period when you become a member of the plan where you're not covered for any condition that existed in prior to typically three months before. Um, that's one that most people focus on because it does impact probably, I don't know, I haven't got the claims to say, but I do see them quite regularly being investigated it's unfortunate more than anything else because people tend not to move jobs if they're unwell or they've had a serious illness so it's not as catastrophic as it sounds but they just may be caught inadvertently um, when medical records are revealed. Um, Typically it will unfortunately be um, mental nervous is the one that gets caught most because It pre exists and there's a um, track record of ongoing medication or contact with doctors or whatever. But it can include cancers and other things. Quite rare, no, because people with cancer tend not to move jobs. They tend to stay where they are. Uh, So it's not as bad. Um, The typical ones are um, intentional self injury, um, criminal acts, where they're covered by other insurances. It's not a membership of the armed forces, so that's a little one for those guys that do voluntary military work. You'll be careful about that. There aren't that many, really. It's it's just the ones that you would expect to be there, that you know where people have deliberately or inadvertently um, have a condition which they know about. And, or they commit acts which they know shouldn't are going to lead to... Um, Probably some catastrophic consequence. Like some some policies contain a dangerous sports exclusion. As and my, my brother-in-law is a is a great dangerous sports guy. He um his his big hobby is climbing frozen water uh, waterfalls. I did I got twelve feet up one and decided it was too dangerous.
0: <laughs> Getting back down again. I'm sure it's one of those ones where the people who do it all the time say, if you know what you're doing, it's not dangerous. But objectively, I just don't see how there can't be some element of risk there.
1: So oh, it's a, it's a terrible risk. It's not. It's not very much fun. But you're just digging ice axes and crampons into ice, and it's just hard
0: work, quite frankly. <laughs> um Now, what about um, out of country? So this is, I think, an increasingly common issue for Canadian employers. You know, whether it's You've you've cast a net and you've you know hired somebody who's in Brazil and they're you know in the process of relocating to Canada or you know I have an employee in Calgary who decides that they want to work three months of the year in uh, I don't know Dominican Republic or Costa Rica, what happens to your fall? It's a very specialist
1: area um, and it's one where I was involved in the early part of my career um, third country nationals and expatriates. I don't get involved in any anymore, but it is specialist. Typically, um, Canadian employers tend to keep their, try to keep their um, employees in the domestic arrangements. And some elements of it they can, for instance, the life element maybe, um, they'll keep them in. Disability is pretty tricky. And the thing you've always got to be wary of is, what are the laws of the country in which the guys are working? Is it legal for them to do this, or is there a taxation consequence? Um, There's a whole host of companies out there that work on these issues and the consequences of having expatriates. It's not as simple as we'll keep them in the plan. That used to be we'll keep them in the US plan, we'll keep them in the Canadian plan. That's not working anymore. You tend to have to have domestic arrangements wherever they are and just fill in the gaps with appropriate contracts, whether it be offshore or in the Canadian market. But typically, they some benefits, they keep them whole in Canada. Um, the ones we see are tricky is when you've got US nationals in Canada that are being paid out out of the US payroll, and that's really difficult because technically they're US employees and subject to US law. Um, very tricky, I, I don't get involved in it, it's very, very specialist area, to be
0: honest. Yeah, I'll uh, one day get Phil Tyson from Global Benefits in Calgary on the call to to talk about this, because I know Phil lives in that space. And I agree. When Phil talks about the iterations here, I think, who would ever want to be in that business, Paul? So, yeah, yeah, it, it, it is. It's,
1: it's a very. But there are thousands and thousands of expatriates, in, in, incoming and outgoing. And there are some arrangements I know about for um, people coming in on visas and how that works. I understand that. But it's, when it's it's always that you've got these more typically high, highly paid technicians or senior people traveling around the world, and they really need, it's down to individual advice, um, and come away from making decisions based on nationality. That's a very, very poor answer. Um, it, although
0: sometimes what you're left with, right? There's... Uh,
1: yeah, occasionally it is. You know, it's, it's typically the case if people... Now, we have a, or have dealt with a couple of religious groups before that you think are easy, and suddenly you find there's three in Zambia, two in right. uh, somewhere else, and then you've got to think, well, where, how are we going to do all these people? And you keep them in a, um, either a domestic plan, which, as far as it's permitted... Or you buy an offshore contract. And typically the places like Lloyd's, they write these sorts of contracts that people cover people around the world, which they're licensed in these territories. And therefore it's not illegal for them to write it. So the Lloyd's market is one that is used quite widely for um expatriates and TCNs.
0: So Lloyd's would be essentially like a domestic insurer in any number of markets because they're licensed in that market.
1: They're licensed in most markets. For various things, for instance, they're, but they're not licensed in some in some areas. Like they, Lloyd's are very widely used in um, the United States, but they can't write life benefits in the United States by treaty. But in lots of countries, that's not the case. They, they write all all classes of benefits. But the life business in, in Lloyd's is very small, so it's not it's not the one they concentrate on. It tends to be the accident side, the disability side, um, uh,
0: repatriation, and that sort of thing
1: tends to be their
0: strength it's it's an interesting one i'm sure you i'm assuming you place some business with lloyd's would that be would i have that right
1: yes
0: yeah um is that different than dealing with other underwriters or is that essentially like is it just are they essentially another insurer i know their business structure is a little different
1: yeah it's they they are an insurer as far as canada is concerned it's a bit more complex in that Lloyd's have an office in Montreal, I believe it is, where all the policies are issued from. But they have what's called cover holders that are, are, have the authority to write on behalf of Lloyd's, and we use one of those. And they do benefits business. Um, tend to be They tend to favour more reinsurance than insurance, because that's their market in, on the benefit side of the business. Their big strength is on the um, uh, property and casualty side of the business, where they
0: that's typically the Lloyd's market that's how Lloyd started you know ships and airplanes absolutely uh, on that note actually the reinsurance note so how much of your work then would be sort of negotiating between the 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 seating company the primary insurer and the reinsurer is is that something that you're involved oh, in something. i
1: used to be uh, involved for 10 years as a reinsurance treaty
0: broker in lloyds
1: okay. yeah but i've given that up completely it's i understand it well would uh, i like to do it again uh, no not really it's it's a very it, it's it's something that i enjoy at the time but there are a number of companies around that arrange this and there tends to be the, the the bigger insurance companies deal direct with the reinsurers they don't have brokers in between um but it's it's an integral part of our insurance market every well say everybody there perhaps are a few companies that don't buy reinsurance but i think almost everybody buys reinsurance one description or another
0: in Canada, I don't know what the percentage is today, but I know it typically hovers around three quarters of risk is on the life and disability side is reinsured. Yeah. I know it varies a little bit depending on market conditions, but I think that a lot of folks who are issuing insurance don't realize how much is actually not dealt with by the companies they they see on the policy names. So,
1: yeah, it's it's the big market is the reinsurance market sitting behind these carriers. It's whereas a carrier might write say. 100 million dollars of business. The reinsurers might write 10 billion, so it, they're sharing in a bigger pool, which then spreads the risk and tends to buffer bumps in the in, in the experience throughout that country.
0: So, circling back to LTD, then. So the, I think what a lot of folks on the LTD side are seeing today is just straight up. You know, you've got premiums going up right? For demographic reasons, for claims reasons. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about, you already talked about the demographic thing in your truck trucking example. That was a great example. What else is driving up the premium here?
1: I'm afraid it's down to just a couple, I, a couple of things. I think um, mental and nervous claims are having a really devastating effect on the cost um, for two reasons. One is the frequency they're now becoming significant material um, percentages of all claims and the longevity of those claims. Um, Unfortunately, you have somebody with a serious um, condition and the tendency is then for not to come back to work. And so that leaves you with a, a long tail, a big reserve, which that big reserve is effectively um, in the year it's incurred is effectively a claim in that year is a cost to that year. And it's those, it's not the claims that are paid It's the claims paid plus reserves that carriers look at against the premium. Now I am I'm, I'm afraid I don't have an answer for this. I have had personal experience of, of losing a child to uh, depression and, um, um, uh, personality disorder. So I know these things exist. They're not made up. I just don't think we and this is is for the whole of uh, North America and Europe, we don't deal with these situations that well. There's not enough um, Mm -hmm. doctors that understand these illnesses. There's not enough psychiatrists to help them treat these illnesses. They tend to drop to drug therapy, which is hit and miss. And we don't do enough to keep them in the workforce. I, I think take putting people aside at home, just leaves them to rob right. if you keep them in the workforce. it ha- It's it's keeps them active and it, it, it involved in the community and they helps their recovery. So a little bit of it is lack of resource. Um a lot of it is recognition of these diseases coupled with lack of resource. And the third thing is the inability to um, adapt the environment for these people, the working environment, to keep them in with people so they don't just vegetate at home watching Oprah or or Prince Harry being interviewed 5,000 times, whichever
0: the case may be. (laughs) So I I didn't know this about your own child, Paul. I'm sorry to hear this. Um, The... You know, this is interesting because yesterday there was a Benefits Canada article that talked about reintegration of your employees back into the workforce coming off of a disability claim. And the picture was like, and I get why this happens, but they used sort of a stock photo of a person in a wheelchair, like coming into the office, right? And it's, I don't know, I find it, I don't want to criticize Benefits Canada, I think it's a good publication, but it's sort of a, like, it's the canned response, right? You've, this is how we envision disability still, I think, despite, you know, we I think we've come some ways in in dealing with mental and nervous disorders, but it's still, like you say, this is such a huge driver of cost and it's a cost for disability, it's a real cost for employers, it's a cost on our healthcare system. And then as you rightly say, the, the actual pull on families and so forth, right? So, you know, do you see where there's a, a better way this can be managed in the, the sort of group benefit space? Is there Are there tools there that we're not using or tools that we could be using better? You must have some, some thoughts about this.
1: I think there are a lot of tools available, but they're, they're only available because they're not being provided within the healthcare system. So it's supplanting the lack now here I, I have to confess, my brother-in-law is a psychiatrist in Toronto. But he can't see as many patients as want to see him because he just doesn't have the time. So it's it's lack of resource. And we ha- I think the whole thing is driven by this inability or reluctance to have enough people to treat these conditions. And Canada is... Probably a bit more prone to this because your distances between towns or places where these psychiatrists is based is actually quite large. It's not—it's not like you can drive for ten minutes to see a psychiatrist. It might be you've got to drive for an hour. So there are practical problems and there are funding problems, um, and that's just—that is down to I think government. To face it's a government responsibility to get that health care or provincial provincial governments but the driver will be federal if it, they drive this thing to to increase this care and there's a lot of will but there's just lack of resource i think resource and probably i mean that not just financial but fiscal people that can do this job psychiatrists trained psychiatric nurses you just don't have enough of them. And how do you take 10 and turn it into 20 quickly?
0: It's hard, that's you know, A really, I think, pronounced example of this is, and it's gotten some media coverage over the last few years, but uh, on reserve communities in Northern Saskatchewan, there's, uh, we've had um, both mass murders and large amounts of suicide. And, you know, recognizing that these things could all potentially be somewhat mitigated by having better mental health supports, but it's not like you can just parachute a psychiatrist into, you know, Nipawin or whatever the case is in Saskatchewan, right? It just doesn't work like that. So,
1: no, it, 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 they're all long range. It's not you see a doctor and it's you get given a you get given a, a, a bottle of pills, but if it's a sore throat, it goes away in a week. If it's depression, you're looking at how long was a piece of string? It might be just three months. It might be three years. Yeah. And that, that's the thing I don't think we've got our, um, our head around is just how long-term these come back with disability. But they don't have to be disabled from working. Um, now, I'm a great believer in, uh, yeah. and along with several others, on having what I call residual benefit in the... Um, LTD plans is where you don't have to have been on disability to come back part time. But if you have a disability, where you can continue working part time, but have to be off, because you're not capable of working a full working week, you get a benefit to buffer that time off. and That's the ideal vehicle because it keeps people in the workforce, and they're more likely to come back to be full time.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really solid example. I think that's a, a concrete tool that can be used here residual benefits in place. What about uh, claims management? You know, we have these third-party claims managers out there or some insurers have some limited in-house capability for this. Do you have any thoughts about disability claims management? Disability claims management is a key to
1: an insurance company's profitability. It's also key to getting some facets of rehabilitation to the individuals and how that's worked. There is from one company to another. They tend to um, have um, rehabilitation units, um, but their purpose is to get people back to work. And that's really what they're aiming at. And to do so, they work out plans to get them back to work. Um, It might be a desk, it might be um, wiring in a doorway so you can get through a wheelchair through the door. It might be having breaks so that they can rest whatever it is that's the rehabilitation industry you've got lots of people now using um uh outside entities for um cognitive behavior therapy to help people with nervous mental nervous disorders to get back to work or get through them and all these tools work again i think they're a bit overloaded that's the problem but claims management i uh, i've I just get into now and then I see the overall picture and not I can't get into the fine detail for two reasons. One, A, it's not my job and B, privacy regulations prevent me from doing so. All I see is the picture that's emerging in terms of what does the shape of this thing look like? Is it, you know, is it broken legs, heart disease, cancers, and mental and nervous. And we've missed the one of the cancers completely because cancers are quite high up on the list of disabling complaints um but paradoxically they're not as damaging to an ltd account as perhaps mental and nervous because cancer patients do one of two things they unfortunately either die or they go through a mission and virtually every cancer patient i've ever met is determined to get
0: back to work so it's a good point about sort of the value of work right that you feel like you're recovered only when you're back to work right it's it, it's
1: a very very important part of our psyche i i um um uh, work with a charity that it looks after ad- uh disabled adults um who have had you know catastrophic childhood injuries the transition from childhood where they cared for very well to adulthood is very difficult so what the charity does it does um employs these um kids well young adults actually to make things like christmas cards or whatever it might be for sale but what they find it's not the product it's being at work earning a wage and reacting with the people around them and i've seen that firsthand and that is so Powerful tool in helping people through the problems.
0: Yeah. I do agree with that? I think that that's uh, you know I I uh, we have this in my family too. Mm-hmm. Listeners to the podcast will know that I have a child with a disability, and that was a tough transition for her to make that yeah. transition into adult. And I agree that uh, you know, when she can work, that's a valuable thing for her. So, yeah, so.
1: I think we, we we all misunderstand. Work is not necessarily um, a bad thing. You know, we all need something to hold on. Admittedly, some jobs are not great, but most people do a job that they want to
0: do and it gives them respect,
1: responsibility.
0: And I think it's important. So, now, circling back to sort of tools, I have maybe one last question on set of tools for LTD. And in Canada, the tradition here has been, you know, two thirds of salary replacement up to your NEM, I think. And then, of course, for higher earners, you get the 40 or 50 percent, the the you know, to make sure that you're not uh, paying for a benefit you can't use due to um, your all-source maximum. But are you starting to see groups where they're actually choosing a smaller benefit? Are you starting to see maybe 50% coverage? Or is this something that's not on your radar at all, Paul? Um,
1: We have a number of accounts where the the replacement percentage is 50%. And if you look at the graded formulas where there's, that go down over breaks, they tend to work out at a roughly 55%, perhaps a bit higher. Um, but we come back to the NEMs, that tends to be a bit of a, a break on highest volumes. Because it's surprising how few people could have a higher benefit if they applied for the benefit above the NEM. Because so they would probably pass all the underwriting. But for them it then becomes a cost they cover for say three thousand dollars a month they could be covered for five thousand dollars a month but they won't do that because of the increased cost they have to pay for it because most ltd plans are i believe non-taxable you do see some taxable ones but when they're non-taxable the employee is paying so any increase in their benefit is an increase in their cost which mitigates against them I, i've seen several Probably, I've got one account here looking at. There's hundred people, virtually everybody's stuck on the NEM. A couple of people are above, and they're not stuck there because they don't have the salary to support a higher benefit. They're stuck there because they don't want a higher benefit. It, it's a very delicate balance between what you have and what you can afford.
0: And well, I think willing to pay for what you see value in. I think there's a whole set of trade offs there. So yeah, yeah. Th- that's good, Paul. Thanks. Um. Okay. Now, I don't know if you can answer this question for me, Paul. I'm going to ask you one last question here that would overlap with sort of our broader sector. Um, so most of the folks listening to this call will be financial planners. And I don't know how much you get to see kind of people interacting at a at a personal finance level with, you know, LTD claims or whatever the case is, but um, do you see value in a financial plan? And if so, what's the thing that you see bringing value in the financial plan and if not I'm curious to hear that too the question again if, do you see value in the financial plan um,
1: yes i think i do i think it's it's i think we're all a little bit lax on determining where our financial risks lie we tend to go down a particular channel we want to buy a house or we want to buy a car or but we don't necessarily, and it, it, it applies across all aspects of our lives, we don't necessarily say, where's that going to put me in five years' time? You know, um, what do I need to meet these risks? And I think we just tend to follow what's there. Uh, and I think, it's, I think it's proven that when you, you take kids and you, you put them through financial planning, and we have a couple of very good examples here, where schools are teaching not economics but how finances work so that the children can understand what they're getting into. And I think that 95% or more of adults don't ever think of that. They just take bits and pieces from their lives and that's it. And I think, really, you need to sit down and we're all told by banks you need to do your financial planning and by lawyers who do whatever, but we don't do it. And that's the problem. And I think part of that drifts into the environment where benefits are being bought because they're buying it because this is what people do, what that industry does. I keep hearing the term benchmarking. What is benchmarking? It's what everybody else does. But should you be doing the same thing? Not necessarily. It might be the right thing, but it's got to be for that workforce. And is that workforce homogeneous? Do they all want this plan? Do they all want 50%, 50%, would some of them be happy with 30% and pay less? That flexibility doesn't exist. Yeah. There's far more flexibility in not only the type of benefit that people have, but the quantum. So people get to choose. We had a very nice plan here run by a company called Swiss Life, it's called Choices, which is, it's. Uh, and it gave you, literally everybody was given a pot of money and four or five benefits to choose from, but they actually mixed as they wanted. It was life, short-term disability, long-term disability, dependent life, and LTD, and CI, sorry. And they just bought the bits they thought they wanted. Did they all choose correctly? No, I'm certain they didn't, but most people had choice. And it brings it back to the individual. And I think that's where all markets, group benefits are great. But they completely ignore individual choice, and somehow, if those two were to come together, it'd be a pretty powerful tool.
0: It's a fair point. I I never, um you know, you hear about cafeteria style plans or whatever, but that's a that's a real example of it, and you mm-hmm. know, that's I, I like that idea. of Cafeteria plans are different, but you
1: you choose you choose yeah. benefits. What I'm saying, yeah. is you choose. A middle is complicated. Yeah. you choose everything within there and there are certain yeah. there are ways to do this it's just that
0: i think i mean probably... this, yeah this strikes me as i guess the cafeteria plan on steroids right this is like yeah that's pretty cool actually thanks i'm, I'm glad to know that i we don't have anything like that in canada of course
1: well, there, 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 there is a simple answer yeah. i think in this basically you have a core which is flexibility but right. the flexibility beyond there is you buy the benefit but you it's almost like a shield of voluntary coverage is surrounding this hardcore and everybody gets a basic thing and you just buy the bits you want incredibly complicated though however but we are in the day where we have very sophisticated technology that can enable people to just get onto a website and press those buttons and you can get an algorithm which will calculate can you do it and the answer is yes or no you would think
0: that it would be attainable so um Yeah, that's, that's perfect. Um, Well, Paul, I really appreciate you joining us here. Uh, You've got a depth of experience and knowledge around this. I think, you know, it's, it's interesting to see sort of your, your career in insurance materialize in this very concrete offering to the Canadian uh, group insurance sector. Um, Thanks very much, Paul. Real pleasure. You're welcome. And appreciate you sharing. No problem at all. Thank you very much. lots there. Like I said, a really broad ranging interview. Um, I wish I had asked a little bit more. I meant to and I just I got sidetracked with the discussion about nonprofits. Um, I really wanted to delve into some of the challenges around uh, disability underwriting with First Nations. Uh, Maybe that's something I can follow up with Paul on at a later date. I did want to acknowledge reviews here. I haven't done this in a long time. And uh, Rick McBee, and I know who this is. Um, Rick and I went to a hockey game together recently. So, Rick, uh, um, I'm surprised he didn't mention knife sharpening here because I know that's what we talked about. But uh, I know Rick sharpened his knives to listen to the episode. Uh, the podcast format fits well with my routine being able to listen to the content while in the car or walking the dog made it simple to collect ce credits that's exactly the point so that's rick's capturing the whole spirit of the thing here i found the content and variety of subject matter relevant and the guests enjoyable perfect um no mention of what the quality of the host there rick what's going on all right so um on that note then the number the number for this episode is five and I hope you'll join me again in uh, two weeks when we will um, have Adam Born. A lot of you will know Adam from YouTube. And um, again, we cover some retirement income stuff. And also in this discussion, we talk about uh, Adam's tech stack, which I know is something some of you have specifically asked me about. So on that note, uh, enjoy continued studies. if you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward Um, so i would just launch the course here and i can watch the episode from here Uh, now if you happen to be already listening to it on youtube or whatever the case is you can just navigate right into the quiz you start your quiz and you're just going to go through the whole thing and then at the end of it you'll be able to see your certifications so we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products we bring this up and we Click on Wall Certificate and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits. 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content and Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of a learning opportunity they might not have known about.